0: Well, hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm with my new friend, whom I've made as a friend online because of reading her work on Huffington Post, but have now just actually met physically, materially for the first time, Tamsin Smith. How are you?
1: I'm wonderful, Toby. How are you? You are wonderful. Well, that's great. (laughs) And you've
0: just popped down briefly from the Bay Area, the San Francisco area in northern California, here to Los Angeles, right? I have. Now, I know you've got an eight-year-old daughter playing tennis, but what else are you doing this weekend that can be shared with the group?
1: Well, in a sense, I consider L.A. a second home. I, I spent about three years of my life commuting back and forth between San Francisco and L.A. and... Unlike a lot of Northern Californians, I, I really love it down here. So <laughs> anytime, anytime I have a chance to come down and spend time with friends and hmm. uh, just enjoy the weather and the feeling down here, I, I take advantage of that.
0: Now, what do you think that rivalry is about, actually? It's always puzzled me. I've been here for eight years, but I've never quite understood it. It's
1: uh, an interesting question. In a sense, I think it's a different... Different definitions of what constitutes fun and meaning. maybe. <laughs> I think people in Southern California, for the most part, don't worry so much uh, how other people perceive what they're doing, they just do what they're interested in, for better or worse, and, uh, and follow along. And uh, I find there are a lot of incredibly creative, interesting people, like yourself, living down here, doing very cool things. So I always find myself pretty inspired with the conversations that I have and the people that I meet. I think San Francisco, it's, uh, you know, it's less a single industry town. Yes. uh, There are a lot of different industries and a lot of, I mean, a lot of what people are involved in up there is is high tech. And uh, I think if you're an engineer, that's a really rich and vibrant uh, world for you. But if you're not, you know you can take a lot of interest in the entrepreneurial spirit and, and things that people are doing uh, in, in bits and pieces uh, but um, you know I think it's every city has to have a rival and, oh sure uh, yeah yeah it's such a big state you know why not I think I'm sure that the, um, the Dodgers have something to do with it
0: too so. well this is just very quickly for listeners out of interest we have uh, a, a major league baseball team in San Francisco here in California and one in Los Angeles, one in San Diego, one outside Los Angeles, and both the older teams, the Giants in San Francisco and the Dodgers in L.A., were in fact Brooklyn teams, Brooklyn, New York, and because of the hmm, corrupt Republican mayoralty in Southern California and the creation of the coaxial cable and the uh, ravenous greed of Major League Baseball owners, for the first time it became feasible after the Second World War. The baseball to move across the Rockies because there was now, they were now big enough media markets and the possibility of simultaneous radio and, and TV reception for games to be spread nationally and this is why we have these competing teams both of which, of course, people like me are thought of as being Brooklyn teams that were stolen, <laughs> but have an extraordinary rivalry. That's right. So well, that's this is a perfect powerful.
1: illustration of my point, that you yeah. you walk into a coffee bar in downtown L.A. and meet someone you've never <laughs> met before. and you...
0: <laughs> you can talk about baseball, but in and so a slightly polarized way. a wonderful way. historical... Uh... <laughs> anyway, so, now, as I said, I came across... I mean, I've actually followed your work without knowing it was your work for a very long time, as it happens but I came across you by reading you on the Huffington Post, which is an online magazine that most people will know in lots of parts of the world, I think. But tell us about what you... Have been doing on the Huffington Post. You don't write there all the time, but you've got quite a few pieces that you've done.
1: What's, I'm, what's that for you? Uh, it's been a wonderful platform and just a springboard for conversation, first with myself and then with the hope that somebody else might be listening in. Thank you, Toby. And uh, I'm fairly broad ranging in what I'll write about, actually. It's whatever's on my mind at a particular point in time and I, I tend to get the itch to write every fortnight or so and usually it's a lot of disparate thoughts and experiences and insights that have filled that little block of time and they all sort of weave together into a, you know, first a conversation with myself and then something a little bit more outward facing and it's often about literature, something that I've read or a, a poem that's uh, particularly stuck in mind or a dinner party that I attended or. A campaign that I'm working on, an issue that I've become interested in, and, um, and it really, it's a, an effort just to turn the knob a little bit for people and um, perhaps have them reflect upon a situation or their own situation a little bit differently. I was interested in touching and connecting with people, and I find that writing is one way to do that. And again, it, it first starts inside of me, but then there's always the hope that
0: it's it's going to reach and mean something to somebody else and on it, the outside. I guess the thing I liked about it was the, the pieces of yours that I read, and I was kind of in a slightly blue mood, I think I'd gone to bed early, and I was lying in bed reading the Huffington Post. Slightly pitiful (laughs) narrative to be sharing with the group, but nevertheless. And I read some of your pieces and there was something about them that spoke to me because they were personal without being narcissistic, which is a big California problem that people... (laughs) Do talk about themselves in ways that aren't terribly interesting often because, at least to me, they don't reach out enough, whereas I felt your touch was about things you were experiencing and going through, but would also be about things that were bigger than you or bigger than me as the reader, you know what I mean? That's, so, a,
1: that's a truly great compliment because the sort of poetry that I'm particularly interested in is, uh, it's not so much the free-form stream of consciousness. Here's what on my. Here's what's on my mind. Here's what I thought about in the shower this morning. It's, uh, it tends to be more metrical, rhyming, narrative poetry, and that form makes the sort of forces the poet to universalize what they're saying, uh, to to you know perhaps begin with the very personal thoughts, but then try to find a way to make it appeal. From a melodic standpoint, as well as from subject matter. If you're struggling to sort of find more interesting words that fit a particular rhyme pattern or rhyme scheme, uh, you're going to take a lot more time and effort and uh, be a lot kinder to the audience. And uh, that's so, you know, if, if my writing is coming across in that way, that's certainly how it's intended. It's not so much here's what Tamsin did or Tamsin thought about. It's more, here's a way of looking at something that uh, hopefully uh, uh, can not necessarily reorient somebody out of a blue mood, because I think there's a lot of benefit in blue moods, but to uh, maybe just sprinkle a couple of other little uh, thought patterns out there uh, that that might take you in a different direction if you wake up the next morning and decide that you want to have something of a sunnier day or...
0: Sure, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, the point about the blues is that it gives rise to all kinds of cultural forms as well as life changes, as well as, you know, very bad feelings. (laughs) So um, tell us a bit about poetry then. What is it about poetry that, that speaks to you and is this a new thing or is this a lifeline? Engagement.
1: It's a lifelong engagement, but I've been a lot more reflective about it in the past maybe two or three years. Uh, I've always had certain poems that would knock me over the head and uh, sort of incapacitate me uh, in, in a sense, and but I never spent a lot of time wondering why that was. And uh, it's, it's more recently that I've been writing about poetry. I've been uh, memorizing poems and reciting them more publicly and sort of dipping into what, what goes into a poem and, and sort of the history of poetic uh, forms and movements that uh, I guess I've developed something of a way to, to explain it which is that in a sense I think a poem is it's almost like a, a dream that sits inside of us that we've, we've forgotten and when you see it on the page or you hear somebody recite it aloud it, it comes alive again, alive again. And so it's not like a story where you're learning something for the first time. It's uh, being reminded of something that's deep, deep inside of you in your muscle memory, in your sinews. And the astonishment, I think, of recognizing not only that that thing is in there, but that somebody else has found a way to put it into words. Somebody who may be, you know, from, from 13th century Persia or you know, four or five hundred years ago, that's... That exact same sensation and been able to articulate it is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And to me, it's the essence of, of humanism, recognizing that we all share experience. And uh, you know, sometimes a poem will will resolve and uh, refresh a way of thinking about something. And sometimes it's just really a sensation and sitting in that moment. And both, I think, are deeply uh, profound and and wonderful experiences and I think poetry has been taught uh, in such a terrible way in in recent years and frankly a lot of the poetry that's out there in public discourse I think is not that kind to the audience so one of the things I've been trying to do is, is reintroduce this form to people so that they can enjoy it in, in the way that I do. Not everyone will, but I would wager to guess, and it's been my experience that for everybody there there is one poem in there that's uh, sort of the thumbprint of their heart. And they may not have found it yet, but it's there. And when they do, it uh, it's a key.
0: In terms of writing about these questions and others on Huffington Post. I guess people call it Huff Post, which I don't. Huff Poe is it? Yeah. I don't really like that. But anyway, <laughs> whatever we call it. I mean, I don't approve of her because, uh, first of all, she had an appalling boyfriend who was a dreadful right-wing literary and theatre critic in Britain. She may be a great person. She's probably a friend of yours, but I don't approve of her no. number one. <laughs> she's not. And number two, she was a crazy right-winger before it suited her to change sides, and I was once on a radio program with her, which was the moment when she flipped her politics, and I was there to be the leftist, and she was there to be the rightist, and she stole all my thunder, and I had nothing to say. Mm-hmm. So I have a pathetic personal animus, but regardless of all of that. I do actually think Huffington Post is an interesting thing
1: it is an interesting thing she was able to uh, bring it bring it to life it I don't believe was her idea originally but the idea of an aggregator site it began really for political discourse yes uh, and on the left uh, definitely yeah. but now it's become a really robust site for a lot of cultural conversation yeah. and uh, there's a whole section on women's issues and it's uh, it's an I think the web is it's just such a vast plane that uh, it is helpful for people to have certain places to go when they're just exploring because that will often then take sure. them to smaller sites that they wouldn't have known were there had they not sort of come to the to the you know the main open door which which helped Sure,
0: sure. And in terms of your concerns, what's what kind of reaction or response have you had, apart from a family from me, but my wife, many men sitting No, writing fan letters to you?
1: No, you're not. Uh, So it's much appreciated (laughs) that you have. Very much appreciated. Uh, I do get great feedback. I mean, a lot of it is my friends. You know, the nice thing about Facebook is friends that you see and friends that you don't see. Or Twitter and such. uh, That um, people will come across it. And I, I always get... A really nice reaction. You know, this made me think about something in a different way, or it was just a pleasure to read. I mean, I, I I try to write poetry, but I think my the form that works best for me is to try to be poetic in my prose. I find a way, I think, usually to put a little music into my essay writing, and it's more effective, I think, than when I try to uh, craft a villanelle and, and things like that. Uh, I do. It's it's interesting because the the more uh, culture and, and arts pieces that I write uh, tend to have a smaller audience because I think, you know, particularly on Huffington Post, people aren't going there as much for that information. They tend to be more interested in, in the political news and social impact. And so when I write on uh, and gossip, well, yes, of course, not that I read those, things, but I think of you're quite right. That. Actually, if you look at how how much. Uh, how much a particular article has been retweeted, uh, which means shared on Twitter or shared on Facebook or some other social network. If, if you do come across a, you know, Ashton Kutcher, Demi Moore story, there's just thousands of shares that I I could never aspire to to match. But I do, uh, you know, when I write about a, a, a campaign to empower young women around the world, or you know, on some climate change issue tends to get a lot more traffic, uh, which I think is the nature of the site and what people are using it for. And also maybe, uh, you know, it it says a little something about our culture. A lot of people don't take the time to uh, click and read an article about poetry or music or some other form uh, as they will for sort of hard news, you know, just looking for those bits and pieces to go about their day.
0: Now, speaking about that, I wondered if we could turn a little bit to some of the other work that you do. And I'm always searching for the right terms to describe this sort of work. Social entrepreneurialism, cultural entrepreneurialism, I don't know, tell me what you would call it.
1: Well, this goes back to my age-old desire to want, to want to be and do something simple like doctor, attorney, accountant, because <laughs> it makes it a lot easier than describing. I want a word. I've never really had an easy way to uh, to describe, so my, my six-word memoir is, is a lot more complicated. Uh, but, uh, you know, social entrepreneurship is, is a good, and it's, it's a term of art that I think people understand now, so it's a good way of describing, really trying to leverage and understanding uh, how things work, particularly in a business context to make a dent in the universe, and so uh, whether, you know, for six or so years i worked on Capitol Hill, really always trying to form interesting coalitions to move uh, an issue that I thought was important and meaningful in the social space forward, and I continued to do, take that approach when I was heading public policy at Gap Incorporated, which is a huge global herald. And then as President of Product Red, which was very specifically an endeavor designed to help eliminate AIDS in Africa, it was really trying to uh, maximize the uh, positive impact that business can have on consumer behavior and turn it towards uh, the creation of elements and tools to make it very easy for regular people to do something meaningful as they were going about their regular, regular day. And I do a similar sort of thing now, whether it's for the United Nations Foundation or for other smaller nonprofits. I help them build uh, campaigns or tools or uh, even just branded messages uh, that appeal to the general public, often a uh, consumer-oriented public, and uh, just make it easier and more engaging, more fun for people to do something meaningful. Uh, without necessarily having to put on a hair shirt and go marching at a G8 summit. You know, it can be just as simple as choosing one t-shirt over another, or one pair of sneakers over another. You know, we we are a consumer culture. People buy things, and, you know, it's my hope that if you are going to buy something new, that you would do it in a way that would be a benefit to a a non-profit organization that's trying to do something good for the world.
0: And the name of the organization you're running now?
1: Uh, slipstream Strategy is what I call uh, my operation, which is, is me and anyone else I need to pull in for a particular project, but it's, uh, it is, it's a streamlined Slipstream.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's got a nice website, Thank Slipstream you. Strategy, worth visiting. I wondered if you would mind taking us through those different periods in your life and just sharing a little bit of what they were like. So you mentioned Capitol Hill, and uh, C.P. Snow, you know, physicist and novelist who coined the expression of two cultures, was also the person who coined the expression in one of his massive array of novels about Whitehall in Britain, The Corridors of Power. So what's it like being in D.C., Washington, District of Columbia, in the corridors of power, and what were you doing there?
1: Well, it was, a, it was a completely random arrival. I have to say, I uh, you know, in a sense, in my end is my beginning. I've sort of come back around to what, my, what I thought I was going to spend a lot of my time on, which was English literature and essays. Essaying. I uh, was an English literature major in college. How and were you? Okay. thought about law school really just as an excuse to get to Northern California, with this sort of <laughs> mythical quality in, in my mind. I'd read... Henry Miller's Big Sir and the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch in high school and just decided I'd lay my bones there one day. Uh, but um, decided not to uh, go to law school and ended up getting a graduate degree in international law and diplomacy not with a focused idea of what I wanted to do, but really it was sort of an extension of the liberal arts education that I've had. It allowed me to continue reading political philosophy, diplomatic history, uh, various non-applied uh, types of classes. And but where did you do that? It was at the Fletcher School, which is at Tufts University, oh. uh, Boston Boston area. And uh, I, I left there thinking I was going into journalism, that I would be a Toby Miller one day and through a odd set of circumstances, ended up doing what a lot of people do uh, in Washington, D.C. When I found myself there thinking I was going to go into TV production uh, and journalism, uh, ended up working for a member of Congress from Boulder, Colorado. And he was a very interesting person to work with in the corridors of power, because I had largely been living in the ivory tower of of academia, and even though the congressman for whom I worked was was very intellectual, he was a former Marine, he was an attorney, very precise thinker, uh, it was really a, a lesson in how to get things done. Because you could have the most brilliantly written piece of legislation in the world, But if you couldn't convince somebody that it was worth their while, it was beneficial to them from a political standpoint as well as from a substantive standpoint, you weren't gonna get anywhere. So I really had to figure out how to um, to move things along. And um, it was an an amazing education. I then, I worked for uh, that gentleman for about three years and then for a very, very different member of Congress from Eastern LA County. The Pico Rivera, city of industry. Nearly his entire uh, district was a Superfund site, which meant that the groundwater was was heavily, heavily contaminated, and very poor districts, uh, working class, mostly Mexican immigrants. Uh, so, having gone from Boulder, Colorado, which was a fairly elite, very white uh, community. Uh, with lots of outdoor space and and greenery uh, to this very industrial district, Mm -hmm. um, working for a guy who was born in a colonia uh, in Mexico, Uh, first uh, member of his family to graduate high school, Mm -hmm. almost dropped out of high school because he was a gang member, he he was an artist, he had an art teacher that told him, you have two paths." one is a good path, one is not a good path, and you need to decide. And he decided to focus on school, ended up um, uh, becoming a UAW worker, was UNESCO ambassador in the Carter administration, and then ran for Congress, but very much a street politician, almost diametrically opposed in terms of how he liked to make speeches, how he liked to receive information, how he liked to interact with his colleagues. But for me, it was just an amazing... Um, Exposure to different styles of uh, political discourse and interaction, and I learned a ton from from both of them. Uh, and so I would say I, I I've always been more of a policy person, I, I'm, and you know I worked for Democrats, which was more my leaning. But in all honesty, I, I wasn't an American citizen. Two two years into my time on Capitol Hill, I still had a British. Passport and Green Party, uh, which I, I'm now an American citizen as well, uh, but wasn't uh, as interested in, wasn't really at all interested in the re-election game, which is so much a part of what every member of Congress, uh, particularly on the House side, they, you know, they're up for re-election every two years. And I was there for the Republican turnover under Newt Gingrich.
0: 95
1: That's right. And I had always uh, represented my bosses on the Appropriations Committee, which had been this. bastion of bipartisanship, because those are the 13 spending bills that have to move every year. So uh, the wheels of government grind to a halt if the appropriations bills don't move. So at the end of the day, they usually scoot it along, and projects and initiatives that um, shouldn't have belonged in a spending bill often got tacked in. So it was a constructive vehicle to actually get things done, but uh, post-95, even that realm became so poisoned by um, the seething hatreds on both sides that yeah, I just felt like I was, um, you know, stubbing my toe left and right, and uh, as I said, Northern California had always been large in, in my uh, my dreams and in my imagination, and it seemed like the right time to finally uh, strike, strike it out, uh, and uh, so I, I stepped away from my job. I, Gave away pretty much everything I owned and arrived with a, you know, a couple of rucksacks and slept on my friend's couch uh, in San Francisco for a few weeks until I found a job and found an apartment. And uh, So I'd say the Washington experience was it was a positive one, even though I was very, very happy to uh, depart when I did. And interestingly, I, as I mentioned, I, I then went to work for The Gap and handled Government affairs for them, and found I I could be a lot more effective from the outside as a representative of a public sector actor than I ever really felt I had been as a staff person working for an elected official. And uh, there are a lot of good and bad reasons for that, Uh, but you know, again, I think it just fine tuned my sense of, uh, and it's, it's to the idea of the slipstream that it's, it's you can't do everything alone, and often if you can draft off the energy of other people and leverage what they do best, yeah. uh, if you're looking to a, a shared goal, you can actually get there a lot farther, a lot faster, and more efficiently when you're collaborating.
0: Now, you must be almost the youngest person who can remember bipartisanship. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're very
0: kind to of use youngest, isn't <laughs> really? I'm sure you're by far the youngest. In any event, when you go to work for The Gap, this is presumably still when Clinton is president.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is, I don't know whether this was a big issue with The Gap in particular, but certainly in that industry it was a very big issue that undergrad students... Uh, in places like Michigan and Madison and eventually even the Pintonistas themselves came to worry about, you know what I'm going to be talking about, labor relations, work conditions in the apparel assembly sector. And by the way folks, we're very close indeed to the factories of American apparel. Um, (laughs) Very complicated case of this. Not very well uh, Regarded by people like me, we're also very close to the train you would take if you were going to the city of industry and the city of commerce, just in the places of the district you were talking about. So, our conversation, although we're in Southern California, is um quite resonant with some of these topics geographically. So anyway, was the Gap, when you got there, in the midst of this kind of issue, or was it not part of that story It was deeply
1: in the midst. Uh, When I arrived, it was just as Bob Herbert, a New York Times columnist, was writing about a particular factory in El Salvador where Gap was sourcing product. They don't, uh, they're retailers and designers, so they don't own any of these facilities, but they're placing orders and there was uh, there were allegations of uh, laborers were trying to form a union being um, put down and. Uh, unlawful firings so you can question the laws in El Salvador at that time but in any case, deeply in the midst of I mean, you didn't use the word sweatshop but I mean, that, was the, that was the banner of the controversy and Gap having stores on every street corner was the absolute perfect poster child for any activist to protest because just if you need a place to meet you pick a Gap store and you stand out in front of it and Gap, like a lot of other retailers had a huge amount of work to do in figuring out how to manage a supply chain that they weren't directly in charge of. And you know, one acronym that uh, gets thrown around a, a huge amount these days, and most people know it, is CSR, corporate social responsibility. That, that didn't have capital letters when I first got to GAP. It was really the beginning of that conversation about what does a global actor do? and what should they do in the situation when they're often operating in developing countries with very weak labor uh, laws. Or if they have decent laws, they're not enforced by credible inspectors. You don't have a history of basic human resources in terms of what's a complaint system. You have, in some countries, many different languages. So even if you do post up a code of conduct, how can you be sure that people are reading it in their native language? So this whole host of issues was very, very hot when I arrived at, uh, at Gap. And in fact, I, as I entered there, the company had just formed a corporate communications department. Because initially, they would handle questions from the media that weren't product-related out of investor relations. So the the concept of talking about the company as a company, as a Gap Incorporated, rather than Banana Republic or you know, the brands themselves, was, was very novel. And I would say in a very short amount of time, from a substantive standpoint, Gap got a very good hold on what uh, what they wanted to do from a policies and practices standpoint. I think they were very constructive in terms of reaching out to civil society, to union representatives, both in this country and internationally, to begin to peel back the layers and figure out what is workable on a country-by-country basis in terms of uh, having uh, not just an overarching code of conduct, but really finding the right way to, uh, to oversee it and figure out what to do if there's a violation. If it's a minor violation, can you get in there and try to fix it? If it's a major violation, do you pull the orders? If You pull the orders, what does that do to the workers who now don't have jobs? And so very complicated questions, but as I say, I think that relatively quickly got to the point where they had a handle on the substance uh, and ended up with about 100 people around the world who were solely dedicated to overseeing conditions in factories. What took a lot longer was for the company to find a voice, a way to talk about what they were doing that didn't seem like they were just patting themselves on the back. And it took many years for us internally to uh, win approval to actually publish a corporate social responsibility report. And we did it not under the original leader uh, of the company, Mickey Drexler, fantastic and famed uh, merchant who now runs J. J.Crew, uh, but under Paul Pressler, who uh, after him. I think had grown up more in the era of CSR and was more comfortable with talking about the company as a company. We published the first CSR report from Gap with a, somewhat of a novel approach, really talking about uh, the two steps forward on a particular issue and the sometimes one and a half, sometimes three steps back. And invited a lot of the NGO, the nonprofit leaders and activists with whom we were working to come and critique and offer pros and cons on the different things that the company was doing really to try to elevate the debate uh, to show the the gray areas and the complexity of it but also really to try to invite the stakeholders in in a more aggressive way to be a part of the solution again with the notion that it's not any one actor that solves a deep and serious problem it needs to be a whole community coming together each bringing in the bits and pieces that they're most skilled at and uh, collaborating to uh, to I never like to use the word solution, but to find a better way to address some of the endemic challenges and move the ball further down down the line. So, but it's a long way of saying yes. It, Gap was in the thick of it. I think they, uh, I was proud to be there when I was there, and I was, I was proud when I left and continued to work with them uh, in, uh, in my next endeavor after that, uh, of which Gap was a member.
0: So, just very quickly, if people want to read what the best leftist journalism in the United States inside the bourgeois media has to say, then Bob Herbert is a good name to look for in the New York Times over the last 20 years, I guess. And for those who are following some of the revelations about Apple that are going on now, not Apple of course itself, but Apple in terms of its subcontractors, then really this is a replay of what we saw in the apparel sector. 15 years ago. That's I mean, right. All the same kinds of arguments and problems apply. There are some additional occupational health and safety issues today to do with exposure to dangerous chemicals. But other than that, a lot of it is very similar. But if we can just go back to your uh, situation, so you arrive at a time when the kinds of skills that you've picked up during your yeah. studies and your time on the hill, <laughs> the expression I love to use, work quite well in terms of the political-economic conjuncture with the needs of GAP. And you feel as though you actually get more done, ironically, as you say, perhaps for dubious as well as good reasons, from the outside working with a big corporation than you can from the inside working with people who are on an electoral cycle, as you say, where, I don't know, does it ever end? I mean, they've got an election every two years. There aren't wealthy people in their constituencies in the case of the uh, member of Congress who's in... The Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. They've got to be trying to raise whatever they can get all the time. How can they keep their eye on the ball? They're traveling all the
1: time. Yes.
0: The rest of it. But at some point, you decide you've had enough of Gap, and you move. When does this happen?
1: Well, uh, in the beginning of '97, yeah. I uh, sort of went public with something uh, that I had been working on. Uh, really as a result of the very first bill that I that I worked on when I, when I got to GAP, which was the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act. I was blessed in my time at GAP that I that I think the only person that had really any idea what I did and could do when I arrived there was Don Fisher, who had founded the company back in 1969. Oh, really? Huh. And was just an, an amazing human being. And I went to him and said, look, this is... It was very interested in international trade. Clearly, it mattered to the company, both from an operational and from a reputational standpoint. And I said, here's a bill that I think is very important for countries in sub-Saharan Africa to get their feet on that first round of economic development. And I think there's a way for us to go in there and really push for labor standards, environmental my son is so into Queen right now. I'm getting a little distracted. by <laughs> Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yes, Freddie
0: Mercury's in the background. And there's this what are you? I actually. And here
1: I am talking about global policy.
0: I can I must admit, I I can't share this with your son. I never liked Queen. I mean, they were they were about five years older than me, mm-hmm. uh, and so these songs were hits when I was in high school. Everybody loved them except me, and I used to sit mute in the corner waiting for them to end.
1: Well, I think it may be time for a a re-immersion. So that will be your homework for tonight, to put on the the cans and and (laughs) listen and find your inner Freddy. So, uh, but in any case, um, we, uh, so Don and I spent a lot of time tracing around Capitol Hill, working with the Congressional Black Caucus, Muhammad Ali, again, a very odd set of collaborators to bring this bill forward. And flash to, you know, eight, nine years later, uh, I was asked to go to a meeting with uh, Ali Hewson, who's Bono's wife Bono of YouTube fame, and Bobby Shriver, uh, who had worked a lot with, with both of them on Africa-related issues. They had come to me because Ali and Bono had started an apparel brand, Eden, and they wanted to source more product in Africa. They were meeting with some challenges from a, from a logistical standpoint and also just finding good, reliable vendors. And various folks had said, "You need to talk to this woman at Gap." And uh, they came in. It then started a conversation about you know, how great it would be if, if Eden would be source in Africa. But at the end of the day what was really going to be impactful to Africa would be if huge brands like Walmart and Target would begin to source there. And so I began to talk to them about a more consumer-facing way of highlighting what Gap was already doing, which was sourcing product in sub-Saharan Africa. But again, we couldn't really blow our own horn and tout it. And the consumer didn't really, even if we had, they wouldn't quite have known what it meant. It needed to be sort of drawn into the conversation a little bit more. So, though we initially, uh, I sort of pitched them on uh, about even doing a sub-brand within GAP and we yeah. can expand it and extend it, uh, it ended up uh, becoming this, this concept of creating sort of a supra brand that would be many, many uh, global uh, brands coming together, all using the same mark to create product, uh, the, the profits of which 50% from each of the... Yeah would go to help lightings in Africa. And this became uh, Product Red, which we launched on, on, well, we launched it at the uh, World Economic Forum in, in Davos at the beginning of 97. I then stepped down from Gap, Gap was one of the companies that was part of this first wave of companies. Uh, stepped down to become president and helped put the team and the plan to launch in the US together. And we launched on uh, the Oprah Winfrey Show, which was phenomenal because that woman. Can move people. Uh, so we had uh, Bono going down Michigan Avenue with with uh, Oprah stepping into the Gap store with Mel B. Cruz and Christy Turlington behind the counter. And uh, these huge blown up images of, uh, that Annie Leibovitz had taken of people like Steven Spielberg in Red Garb, who we went into the Apple Store, Kanye West there, and you know all the, all the different actors uh, really big this up. And I think it was something very powerful about demonstrating to uh, the, the bigger public that, there was, that these companies had come together, something that they don't normally do, and been so inspired by the notion that uh, 43 cents a day can keep someone alive. You know, that 4,400 people a day in Africa die of a treatable, preventable disease it was not okay. It was a tsunami a week. You know, we've just come through the big tsunami in Asia and people have been, you know, quite um, wonderfully responsive to that. But um, there were a lot of these pandemics and crises going on around the world that I think people cared about. They just didn't, didn't really have the tools. They didn't have the tools to make it easy for them to get involved and what we were trying to do was take it down to the main streets and high streets and uh, get regular people engaged in the fight, you, know, you don't have to be a member of Congress, you don't even have to write to a member of Congress just if you're doing your back-to-school shopping or getting a gift for someone, just choose this object over that object. We didn't allow any premium pricing, so it was really an apples-to-apples comparison. And I think it tipped the balance in, in the cause marketing space to make it okay for charity to feel fun. feel sexy and feel exciting uh, because it had uh, traditionally been uh, sort of, you know, here's an image of a child with flies on their face. You should feel very, very bad by this object that you don't want but because you feel guilty, take it home with you. And it was our sense that people would do that once but we wanted the repeat behavior. We wanted people to do it again and again and again and human nature tells us that if something feels good, people tend to do it again and again and again. If it feels bad, they don't. And uh, so that was some of the, the DNA and the original thinking of uh, what became Product Red. But for me, it was uh, this uh, sort of crazy bolt from the blue that uh, came out of this little bill that I worked on way back when. But it was a great, uh, great way to bring together lots of disparate uh, aspects of what I had, what I had done in the past, and, and in a lot of ways bring out a creative side of me that didn't really have as much expression uh, in uh, working on the hill and working a gap where you know, I'd write speeches and articles and things like that but it was relatively dry. At Red I got to say, you know, here I am in Swaziland and let me tell you about the woman I've just met who's alive today thanks to people all around the world that have bought Red product. That was that, that gift really of being given the challenge to take someone to a place they might never visit and introduce them to people they might never meet and make them feel that amazing connection uh, that their two lives had. that was, uh, it it opened up a lot of new doors for me. And so when I I left uh, Red after three years, and I sort of, I don't think I actually did a pie chart, but I thought about, you know, what are the things that I want to keep doing uh, or maybe even do more of? this sense of whether it was public speaking or writing for the public, uh, this way that I think I've found of trying to make people just feel like their lives had greater meaning. Uh, because you have the power to do that, it's all inside of you, you just sometimes need uh, someone's permission to say "Think." you think about yourself that way and maybe a couple of little suggestions that sort of make it feel more real and make it stick in the mind but uh, you know without in in no planned way my life has sort of cascaded into uh, sort of a thread that that makes sense uh, even though it is not remotely intended.
0: (laughs) Accidents of history so the in terms of the cause-based marketing, corporate social responsibility and consumer activism, have you noticed a shift in the, I don't know, I suppose we're talking about 12 or 15 years you've been involved in these things and, for example, a shift as a consequence of the recession or depression that began in zero seven zero eight.
1: There are not only more mechanisms for regular people to be involved, I think there's a much greater consciousness. I mean, I'm sort of surprised, you know, I have tea on my left and a cup of water on my right and it's in a plastic cup, which surprises me, Uh, you know, not to give them a hard time (laughs) here because it's a lovely place, but you don't, you just don't see that much uh, in particularly, coffee shops where in people. in
0: and, Northern California.
1: Well, maybe that's maybe that's, a but I see, think
0: see, we're back to the giants and the torches.
1: Just as a just as an indicator, I mean, San yeah. Francisco. We have uh, mandatory composting, yeah, which people were up in arms about, but now I think most people I know feel sort of very peculiar if they have to throw a banana peel anywhere other than in a compost bin. Right. And uh, so I, I do think there's a lot more awareness. There are all sorts of ways for, you know, particularly consumers to purchase meaningfully uh, and be a beneficial buyer, you know, whether it's Tom's Shoes or, uh, you know, companies that credit source of in America or use organic cotton uh, or even recycled scrap apparel. I mean, the sort of repurposing of items uh, from a design standpoint is, is blowing up. It's
0: why hemp really should be legal. Yes,
1: that's exactly. Exactly. But the other thing that... What to me, is most exciting is this uh, the growth of the philanthro team. The 14, 15 year old kid who is uh, not just raising money through a lemonade stand, but you know, I went to an 18 year old birthday party for a young woman called Priyanka Jane in Seattle. For her 18th birthday, she decided to host a mother daughter tea to benefit Girl Up, which is a campaign of the United Nations Foundation that I work on, and she raised. I think it was thirty thousand dollars or something like this at this mother-daughter team you know for her birthday which is phenomenal and she she's had her own foundation for about two years now that is around empowering and inspiring kids to get involved in the world around them kids even younger, a friend of mine uh, Lily Cantor created this World Repair Kit, a project I helped her on, which is for kids my children's age, you know, 8 and 11 uh, making dog biscuits and selling them outside the grocery store and, you know, whether it's raising little amounts of money or lots of amounts or, you know, a greater amount of money, it is making these kids recognize their role in the world around them and also empowering them to know that they may only be one kid, but they can actually make a difference. I think for so long, I think people are generally good, and they they want to make the right decisions, and they want to do things that help other people. They just haven't found it very easy to do that in a way that made them feel like it was really working. And I think uh, not only are there more campaigns out there, but I think the campaigns are also much better about paying back the favor by talking about the impact of where the money is going and those that don't do a good job or aren't full of a lot of good impact stories, uh, the public is much more aware that they probably don't deserve the effort and I'm going to go and spend my time and, and uh, my energy somewhere else. So I think there's a higher level of sophistication about the problem but also about the mechanisms that exist to get involved. And make decisions about one's own lifestyle and one's own behavior, as well as to leverage our networks, our social networks and our neighborhood networks, and um, uh, exercise a little bit more leadership uh, over the future. Mm,
0: mm. And you haven't seen that tail off at all since there have been major unemployment issues, since salaries have gone down, job security has eroded. Student loans at a trillion dollars.
1: Well, I'm always a, I'm always a half full kind of person, <laughs> and I'm not very uh, data driven. So I'm sure there have been studies. I would just say anecdotally, for me, I have a sense that the downturn has made people much more conscious and much more humble about how uh, transient um, luxury and comfort can be. And has uh, brought out more empathy. I think people are much more embarrassed to flaunt their wealth now than they certainly were 10, 15 years ago. And, uh, I mean, you, you see it around this time, I and mean, you, can't, you can't spit without seeing a Prius. They're just everywhere. And it used to be that it was Escalades and Range Rovers, and you still see them spotted around, and sometimes you see them in the very same driveway, but
0: They're an embarrassment. You
1: know, it's like a tab after a pizza, you know, I guess that maybe there's a thought that one wipes the other one out, but, you know, at least they have
0: one, right? Uh, So... Can I follow up on something you said there that interested me, which is, you said I'm not very data-driven, and I'd love to know about winning over people in the absence of data.
1: I, I, it's maybe why I spend a lot of time with poetry. I tend to th- like to go deep. Yeah, those are the people I like—the ones that'll just let you jump in and keep going. Uh, the superficial folks I get very nervous around. I don't quite know how to. And I can I can talk superficially, but it does, there's no reward in that. So what I always look is, you know, what is that thing that's going to unlock somebody and.
0: It's often a story it's rather than a s- number.
1: Yeah, it's a story, it's, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, and whether it's a, depending what the conversation is, uh, whether it's a, you know, there's a story that I that I used to tell uh, about this young man that I met along the side of the road in, uh, in Swaziland, which is the world's highest HIV infection rate. Actually, the first blog I wrote it from Swaziland, one of the, you asked about the, the comments that I get, the first comment back was... Uh, when I first read this, I thought it said Switzerland. and I thought world's highest HIV infection rate. Who knew? <laughs>
0: world's highest mountain with high rate of HIV.
1: <laughs> that's right, but HIV. that's an aside. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you've it's just, the United States' knowledge of
0: geography. <laughs> walking perhaps.
1: along, yeah. walking along the road, uh, this there was just a little some huts with some uh, woodworking artists there, and it was sort of dusk, so they were closing up and. Um, I was there with two other people that were on the trip with me and were just walking along. And he came out and started chatting with us and a lovely conversation and uh, we said, where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm, my choir is singing up at the Royal Swazi Hotel and Casino. <laughs> and we said, well, we'd like to come hear you and uh, made a plan to go up there yeah. an hour's time away and uh, sort of introduced ourselves by name afterwards. And, uh, he said, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable, that was his name, because I'm always comfortable. And I burst into tears. I just thought, how many people do I know back home that would even say that about their lives when they have every reason to feel comfortable? And we, we then went to hear his choir sing, and it was one of these uh, tourist hotels full of people from a neighboring country uh, that were there for a golf tournament and more interested in talking to the hookers at the bar, in truth, than listening to this absolutely gorgeous choir singing. And, you know, I was mortified and I felt so embarrassed that these guys were all chit-chatting and not paying attention, but I looked at Comfortable and the the friends around him and their choir, they couldn't have cared. Right. They didn't notice. They were just doing their thing. And, you know, in a sense, that's, and that was a real, uh, not a wake-up moment, but a really stilling moment for me, just in terms of how one can look at life and respond to different circumstances. And that's the kind of story that I'll, I'll tell people sometimes, just to uh, make them reflect a little bit differently. And. Uh, so yeah, I mean, to me, a story is always what—that's what I respond to. So it's the only way I know how to connect with other people at that at that deep level. I—I I mean, I, I will throw away or throw around phrases like "4,400 people a day dying of a treatable, preventable disease," and I think that matters. But to most people, it's that one story that touches them because they can't conceive of 4,400 people. And I think that's you know a lot of the messaging around whether it's a famine in Africa or another, you know, when you pan out over a thousand people, they don't exist. But when you focus on one child's face, then people understand. And what we tried to do with Red and what I try to do with other campaigns is to show those individuals and tell those stories. And also to give a sense of hope. I mean one of the things we did at Red was we talked you Nirvana know, used to talk a lot about the Lazarus effect which is um, what happens after someone's on antiretroviral after six or eight weeks. They go from literally looking like they're on their deathbed and literally being on their deathbed to looking vibrant again and strong. You know, the, the colors come back to their face, they put on weight, their eyes are shining again. And you show people that before and after, and you say, this is what 43 cents a day in six to eight weeks does. These people are not gone. cannot write them off when you have the potential through buying a couple of t-shirts and choosing a red ipod uh, you have the power you yourself to transform this person's life to me that is much more well to me that's the only way i know how to communicate that i think long term changes people's behavior because you give them a number they can always find another number
0: Sure, although the interesting thing is that of course the numbers themselves are stories Mm -hmm. because they involve deciding decisions that x and y are different and then adding up the numbers of x's and y's and putting them together and recombining them, shifting them around. They involve all kinds of stories and ultimately when it comes to public policy, the necessity for so-called evidence-based research is that you transform it back into stories. So I think there's a dialectic as any good Marxist would say, yes. uh, between these things.
1: No, I and think you're absolutely, you, yeah.
0: You can't have one without the other. And I think, you know, the, the great problem with a lot of policy research in the United States, not only in academia, but in the coin-operated think tanks of the Republican and Democratic parties and others, is that they actually don't know how to tell the story very well. Uh, where. And, of course, what you're talking about is precisely this capacity to bring to a human level what is both very human and also immense and beyond one's ken. What about dealing with something that is often encountered in this sector, or traditionally has been, namely so-called compassion fatigue? Mm -hmm. My sense is that one of the things that this consumer-based activism has done is to transform compassion fatigue a bit I don't really know why do you think that's right
1: well I think that's one of the reasons we tried to make it fun Uh you know we we enlisted Chris Rock to do you know uh, adverts for Motorola's red phone where he'd say you stupid you never did anything good in your life you can do good by making a call. He is he's incredibly funny. You know, yeah. I, mean, I don't
0: like stand up. The only stand up almost I can really listen to is Chris Rock, but everything he does is hysterically funny. So had, uh, brilliant.
1: Brett Ratner, the uh, director, just assembled a group of friends one day and right. shot these hilarious little viral yeah. commercials. Yeah, I with, remember them. You know, Chris Catan's, yeah. you know, in a bolero and little. Shiny red <laughs> satin shorts, <laughs> being spanked by this tall, lovely model. I just, I mean, hilarious. Uh,
0: I wasn't invited, but I'd have certainly been prepared to you know, the, don that gar. For guy. the second,
1: for the second, <laughs> uh, for the second filming, you will absolutely be invited. But uh, I think it was that you know to to begin to inject some irreverence and some fun and yeah. some levity, and it doesn't, even though it's a serious issue, it doesn't make you feel bad. Um, it actually should make you feel good because if you yeah. get if you if you join this movement, you're a part of something truly amazing, but, but you're also part of something really fun. One
0: of the interesting things about Chris Rock and I'd, I'd love to know why this is he manages to talk about race relations in ways that don't make white people feel terrible about themselves, even though he tells the truth. Mm-hmm. which is quite an achievement, <laughs> I think.
1: I think there's well, you can almost always tell when someone's bitter inside. Yeah, and you just don't feel that from him. No. and you just feel he, you know, he's sort of laughing at everything sure and including self mockery fantastic it does, doesn't mean it doesn't matter and the bad things don't happen but yeah. he's yeah. sort of saying you know he's just trying to open a window I think yeah. and he does it really really well yeah
0: yeah well I wanted to finish up if I could we've got about three or four minutes left with asking you I'm not going to ask you where you see yourself in X period because given Hang what you've described <laughs> as the the tumbling up and down and across of your career over the last couple of decades that would be an exercise in folly on my part but where you what do you think some of the key issues for philanthropy cause based activism and so on will be in the next say couple of years what what when you think about areas you want to work in now or areas that people are coming to you with concerns about what seem to be Issues.
1: Uh, I think well, there the, are a couple of ways to answer that question, you know, I'll start maybe just by talking about the tools. Mm-hmm. I, uh, As I mentioned, I'm quite excited about uh, really the next generation, I mean, you know, you and I are trying, but uh, we've, <laughs> we've made little little bits of progress here and there, but, you know, it, uh, we've, we've handed the next generation the problem, but also I hope. They're maybe better up to the challenge than we are, and I think some of the most powerful tools that they have are on the internet, social media tools. You know, Google will give a nonprofit up to forty thousand dollars a month of free search capability if a nonprofit actually knows how to manage word search. Facebook has all sorts of tools that they build to make it very easy for a nonprofit to amass a community without having to shoot commercials and have a traditional ad budget, ad buys, all of the things that used to keep nonprofits out of the game for so long. One of the reasons Red went to these global brands was because we wanted their marketing budgets. We wanted their Super Bowl commercials. We wanted their 10 miles of windows. Uh, Nowadays, a nonprofit, it's nice to have those things, but you don't have to have them to really do something meaningful. There are examples of singular people who've raised huge amounts of money and huge amounts of awareness just through Facebook profiles. So I think as nonprofits and the turnover of nonprofits where the leadership of those entities gets younger and younger and they start onboarding team members who've grown up with these tools, They'll be much more savvy about how to leverage that for good. I think that's one thing that that will happen. And I think, you know, though I am a little bit of a, you know, uh, Candide, I I tend to paint maybe with too rosy a glass where things will net out. I think we we will just hit some crises along the way, whether it's water scarcity, uh, you know, I mean, climate change is already having significant, significant impact on arctic circle and, uh, but now you've got coca-cola you know touting polar bears with the world wildlife Fund. I mean that's we've, we have come a long way and uh, I think we'll see more and more of that and it is almost the case where I think brands to have permission to sell into a conscious consumer they have to have a credible cause connected program it can't be just a greenwash or some partnership they slap together they have to become much more strategic about Choosing nonprofit partners uh, and designing programs with real integrity and authenticity to them, because people are much more aware of what's real and what's not. Uh, I don't think that'll be, you know, the only answer. These are uh, market-based approaches I'm talking about. I'm dreadfully frustrated with our political climate right now. There's not leadership where there should be leadership, and you know, it's sort of the regular people that are driving. The change now, and I think our elected officials need to, need to step up and follow their example. And I just, uh, particularly in, in the US, the system is just you know, cascading into entropy and, uh, it's, and it's, a, it's a disaster.
0: It's and uh, a... the same here in California, for that matter. We need serious constitutional reform now in California and in many other states. And arguably we need it federally um, because it's quite clear that the, the, ba- the system of Congress doesn't work unless it has bipartisanship yes. at its core. And that is a matter of agreement, and there is no such there's agreement.
1: No, there's no civility right now. No, no. And that has no been for a very long,
0: really, since you got out. Yeah. It was your departure. You bloody well did well, it. It's
1: my, uh, my old boss, David Skaggs, started a civility project when he was on... Uh, this is the, the congressman from Boulder, uh, but he resigned a couple years after I left and has, took some of his work to the Aspen Institute, which is an organization that I, I did a fellowship there, and they really do try to foster more values-based leadership. I think you've got entities like Aspen that are trying to do that, even business schools and uh, you know the Kennedy School is, is it trying, but you know it's no program is going to solve this. It has to be human beings coming together to say this can't continue. Uh, it's, again, you know I don't think poetry is going to save it, but you know there there are ways to appeal to people that cross over boundaries uh, and, and get at the essence of what it means to be a human being. And that isn't a conversation that happens nearly enough from today's politicians. You can harken back, uh, but it's been a long, long time.
0: Well, Tamsin Smith, thank you so much for joining us in the pod and letting us be part of your slipstream for a moment. I hope you'll come back when you are next cascading on your slipstream, (laughs) if I'm not mixing my metaphors too much, uh, in this part of the world or some other part of the world where we catch up and let us catch up with what you're up to. It would be an
1: absolute pleasure. Cheers.